Beloved, we come here to the end of this first major section of the Sermon on the Mount, where we have here a, a summary statement of our Lord Jesus Christ in verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What Jesus is doing here is taking all that he has said up to this point and he is driving home this this purpose that he has not only for the sermon but this purpose that God has for us as his people. The word perfect here is, is the word in the Greek is telos. And sometimes the, that word can have a moral significance in terms of, you know, being morally perfect. But most of the time when it's used, it is showing the goal of something. Where is everything headed? And the purpose is that God the Father has for sending His Son, Jesus Christ, who has taken on flesh who is healing diseases, who is conquering Satan, who is is calling people out of darkness and into light, and is forming and shaping a people for his glory. What he is doing in all of this is that he is calling us as participants in the goals and purposes of God. We are to be followers of God in a way that reflects that we believe and that we trust and that we are devoted to the one true God. In summary, I have been saying from the beginning that we are called as God's people to embrace, to embody, and to extend. God's truth, goodness, and beauty to ourselves and to the world. And we need to recognize that to pursue this well, we have to be emptied of ourselves and filled with him. We have to have the moral imaginations and practices of Christian flourishing. We, we have to go through this process where we are being remade and reformed and refashioned because we have lived within a culture, within a history. We have lived within a religious setting that has been forming and structuring our perspectives when it comes to to virtues, the virtues of the kingdom, when it comes to the values of the kingdom, when it comes to the practices of the kingdom. And just like those who are hearing Jesus preach this sermon the first time, their moral imaginations have been formed by more than just the Word of God. It has been formed by a mixture of the Word of God, a mixture of some, some, uh, some accurate teaching of the Word of God, but there's also a whole lot of inaccurate 
At the time of this sermon that is being preached, Jesus has identified the, the source of the false teaching that he is seeking to redress. And that is the, the, the preaching of the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, what I haven't said up to this point that I'm now going to say is that throughout this exchange where Jesus has been saying, you have heard that it was said, but here's what is written. Part of what it meant to be a Pharisee at the time in which Jesus is preaching this sermon, and by the way, something that is still true today amongst those who identify themselves as modern Pharisees. And I don't mean the way we in evangelicalism, or, or really in reform circles, the way we use that. We use that word symbolically. And we forget that there are people living today who consider themselves to be those who have inherited the traditions and the teachings of the Pharisees. There are Jewish people today who still consider themselves to be Pharisees because, well, they don't see it as negative. And one of the hallmarks of Pharisaism is the understanding that when God revealed himself on Mount Sinai, he provided not one revelation, but two. Now, if I were to ask you, how many revelations did, did God give to Moses on the mountain? If you've read your Bible, I would imagine that most of you would say one, right? What did Moses come down the mountain with? I know it's Presbyterian, but in what form? The tablets. There was a written scripture, right? God revealed himself and it was written. And the written scripture was brought down to the mountain, was to be delivered to the people. Of course, we know, you know, Moses saw some shenanigans and got mad and threw them down and they broke and we had to recycle the process, right? But he, God revealed himself, it was written, and the written word of God was to be brought to the people. If you're a Pharisee living in the first century, if you're a Pharisee today, what you will teach is, yes, there was the written revelation on the tablets, but there was also the oral revelation. And it is the oral tradition that Yahweh gave to Moses that is the key to understanding the written communication. Now, do you see how this is setting itself up? As Reformed people, please tell me, you're immediately thinking, oh, well, this sounds like the Catholic Church and the Reformers in the 16th century, that, yes, there's a written word, but the traditions of the church are what really form the authority for God's people. See, that's what, that was not new. And so at the time in which Jesus is preaching this sermon, there are the scribes and Pharisees who believe they are the inheritors of the oral tradition, which is more authoritative than the written tradition. And so what have they been doing? They haven't been saying, well, let's read from Scripture and, we'll, and you know, let's see what Scripture says. 
they would say, let's read from Scripture and then we'll tell you what it means. And what had happened through the years was that they were saying that the Scripture taught something that the Scripture didn't teach. And so Jesus is going through and he's trying to reform and he's trying to reshape this moral imagination of this first century group of people who were hearing him as the one who was present on Mount Sinai give the proper interpretation of the written word of God. And the ethic or the practice that Jesus sums up his arrival with is the ethic and the practice of radical love and forgiveness. How radical? Well, he says that we are to take up the cross and follow The cross to us has been very specifically, historically, and culturally communicated to us that, as I mentioned last week, we tend to forget its true historical meaning. We tend to forget just how grotesque the cross was. We tend to forget what Rome was attempting to communicate through the cross. Rome used the cross to say, we are the ultimate power, and if you stand in our way, we will enslave your women and children, and we will crucify your men. The cross was a symbol that they were using to communicate their ultimate authority and power and to scare, intimidate, and bully people into voluntarily enslaving themselves to Rome. Jesus tells us to take up the cross, to follow him, and as his disciples, This means that we are called to a lifestyle that is so different from this world's virtues and values and practices that that our very existence, our embodiment of the kingdom can only have the possible explanation that we are connected to something supernatural and divine to take up the cross and follow our lord jesus christ as his disciples means that we are called to a lifestyle so different from this world's that its only possible explanation is supernatural and divine the cross of christ is the cross of christianity And the cross of the gospel is the cross of our witness bearing. It is the cross that is the most radical turnabout in all of history. 
The image of the cross as it was implemented by Rome was a symbol of all conquering power. But the symbol of the cross as transformed through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is that now the cross, because of Jesus Christ, speaks of the all-conquering power of self-giving, self-sacrificing love that provides freedom from death and freedom from shame. Why did, did Rome use the cross? Because they knew that it would scare people into enslaving themselves. They knew that it would shame people into enslaving themselves. And they knew that intuitively because they were part of a world in which God had made, had created, a world that had fallen, and even though they were fallen, they were still in his image. There was still a sense of the existence of God, and there was a sense in which they understood the power of shame and guilt. And like their father, like their true father, not Romulus, like their true father, the devil. They utilized the power of guilt and shame and the fear of death to get people to voluntarily enslave themselves. Well, what Jesus has done is he has voluntarily given of himself for those who had chosen enslavement. Jesus Christ voluntarily gave up the glory that he was due as the second person of the Trinity that had always existed in the glory of the Godhead. He gave that up for a time and he entered into history taking onto himself flesh. And as Paul tells us, he came not only taking on himself flesh, but he came in the form of a servant, considering others more important than himself and serving to the point of death. He voluntarily entered into death. He voluntarily entered into guilt and shame in order to free you and me from those realities. Rome uses the cross to say, this is what we're going to bully you into, and so that we can control you and manipulate you. And Jesus says, I will take that symbol onto myself, and I will give it a completely new meaning. And I will voluntarily go into the darkness, and into the depths of my Father's wrath against your sin. And I will do that to free you completely and eternally from sin's grip, from its guilt, from its power, from its shame. As Jesus is revealing himself as that long-awaited Messiah who has come, he reveals this as his purpose. But it is not only for those who love him. 
Because if that was the case, it would have been for no one. Jesus came to his own, John tells us, and his own received him not. Jesus has come to to be this as the revelation of God and his purposes. And he has done this for those who hated him, for those who had rejected him, for those who were looking for something better than him. Right now, we, we noted last week that we live in a culture in which in Western civilization, through the, the, philosoph- the, the philosophy of, of Nietzsche and others, that this, there has been this renewed return to trying to use the cross to shame people, trying to use the cross to, to show what utter nonsense it is. Why would you believe in, in a Savior who died? Nietzsche says it's ridiculous, it's silly. And the only reason the church preaches this is because it's a way for them to control your moral imagination, your perspective of what true virtue is, and they are trying to dominate the way that you live so that they can control you. And he says the only way to the path of true living is to throw off the shackles of a stupid message that salvation can be found in someone who couldn't even conquer Rome. He taught what is, what is called the, the God is dead theory. God is dead. He's not real. He never was. He wasn't there. And even if he was, he wasn't strong enough to overcome Rome. So you need to throw off the shackles of a ridiculous message that taking up the cross is the path to life and meaning and purpose and salvation. Are we going to be bullied Are we going to be shamed? Are we going to be guilt-tripped into believing this false anti-gospel of Frederick Nietzsche and all of those who have come after him? But more realistically, if we don't if we resist their bullying, if we resist their attempts to squeeze us into their mold, if we resist the cultural uh, pressure that is being applied to Christians to try to silence us and to try to squeeze us off into the privacy of our own homes, even if we resist, in what manner will we resist? Will we resist by taking up the same mechanisms and the same perspectives and the, the same, uh, the same uh, 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 strategies in trying to resist their pressure by exerting more pressure against them? What will be the means of our resistance? 
Jesus tells us, love your enemies and pray for them. Love your enemies and pray for them. The cross is one of the most radical upheavals in the cosmos, in history, in theology, in philosophy, in moral and ethic teaching, ethical teaching. The self-sacrificing, cruciform love of Christ is the most radical upheaval because it is what truly reveals the heart of God. But beloved, this message reveals your heart and mine as well. The degree to which we embrace the real meaning of the cross for ourselves and for our mission, for our resistance to the philosophical and cultural pressures that we are experiencing, the degree to which we embrace the real meaning of the cross is the degree to which we will take up the cross for our neighbors, especially our enemies and persecutors. Let me put it to you a different way. As we looked at last Sunday, when Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, does he really know what he's asking? Let me rephrase. Does he really know what he's commanding? And the answer is yes. And you and I are called to embrace then what is truly being set before us because the temptation that every single person in this room has, including me, is to say, yes, I am to love my enemies and pray for those who persecute me, but only insofar as there are certain things going on. If, if this thing happens, well, then that, that crosses the line. If this, if this thing happens, if they push me this far, well, then Jesus understands, and I, I get out from underneath the call to keep loving my enemies. We are always looking for escape routes. We, we all struggle with wanting a righteousness that's like the Pharisees, where we reduce the amount of grace that is needed so that we can reduce the calling of the law. And if we can reduce the pressure of the law, if we can make it a little bit more doable in and of ourselves where, it's, where it fits more naturally with my gifts, my talents, my position in life, if I can reduce how much the law requires of me, then what can happen is it gives me a way out of having to live as sacrificially as the very meaning of the cross. And look, I do this. 
And Jesus knows we do this, which is why he says that our righteousness must surpass that of those who will love people who who receive their love. People who will love people who appreciate the love. People who will love people who respond to the love, right? Jesus says our righteousness must surpass that. It must live up to the God who does this for his enemies. And so what we need to do is the opposite of our tendency. Rather than reduce how much grace is needed to follow Christ, what we want to do is cultivate the endless grace that has been made who that has been made available to those who are in Christ. You don't need to minimize how much grace is needed to follow Christ because in Christ you have received all grace. In Jesus Christ, as John tells us, we receive grace upon grace. In Jesus Christ, we are filled with the same spirit that he was filled with in his baptism. In Jesus Christ, we are united to the same God in the heavenly places that Jesus was united to. In Christ, we have that the power of God's word and spirit available to us in order to strengthen our faith and to embody the love of God even towards enemies and persecutors. And so we don't want to minimize how much grace is needed so our lives are more comfortable and it's easier to follow Christ. We want to cultivate the depths and the heights of grace. And so often I have people that will come into my office and they'll tell me that they're struggling with a sin. And the first thing I'll do is I'll start asking questions to see, well, how much of grace are they cultivating? And guess what? So far, I have never been wrong on this. The person is there because their struggle is not the result of not valuing the law. Their struggle is a result of not cultivating the power of grace. This service, every Lord's Day, this liturgy is meant to bring before you the heights and the depths and the breadth of the grace of God in Jesus Christ for us so that as we drink it more and more and take it more deeply into our hearts and we allow it to form and structure our hearts and our minds, we are empowered to not just say the right theology, but to actually go out and take chances. I will make myself vulnerable before God's holiness for my sake. And I will attempt to deal with a sin that I have just been willing to let go or willing to ignore it or even allowing it to run me over. And I will, I will take in the grace of Jesus Christ and I will stand against the bullying, shame, guilt-filled attempts of the world, the flesh, and the devil to make me think that I have to just exist under the influence of this sin.
and in the power of Jesus Christ, I will pursue the purposes of God. It will lead you to take chances in ministry where you get tempted and where I get tempted to think that person is too far gone. How many times we can get tempted, we look at someone or, or it, 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 because of how they look and we get scared of them or we get intimidated by them or, or it might be a family member where we have been abused by them and, and because of that we are scared of them and we allow them to bully us and pressure us. But when you are cultivating the depths and the heights and the breadth of the grace of God and what it means for you to truly be in Christ, it flips that switch within your heart, mind, and will that you will that trust God a little bit more today and I'll trust him by speaking up, by doing something kind for that coworker that constantly likes to make fun of me because they've got my little cross in my cubicle. That there is power available to me that I will not love as I am loved by the person. I will love as I am loved in Christ. And so the, the last thing here for us to remember is God and God's love is our standard. We don't love on the basis of the circumstance we're in with regards to the earthly circumstance. We love as those who are part of the heavenly realities in Jesus Christ. God is our standard. That also includes God gets to be the one who defines for us whether or not we are being loving. And the reason I say that is because of the cultural pressures, because of the developments in philosophy and, 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 and the way that it's being worked out in culture right now. You have those who are outside of the church, those who hate God, those who hate us, because we are connected to Christ, and Jesus told us here in Matthew 5 to anticipate that. And what is happening right now is even when we are loving, we are being, um, uh, we are being thrown under the bus in, the, in, the, in, in public opinion, and we are, we are being called people who don't love. We are haters. Because we are not going along with the cultural virtues and values and practices, we are being called those who hate. Are you going to give in to the pressure of that? Are you going to stand against that pressure by showing their accusation to be true? Or will we let our love be genuine, regardless of how it's received? Will we stand for, for truth 
in a loving way, regardless of the pressure that it receives? Will we strive insofar as it is up to us to live at peace with all men, regardless of how they respond to us? The infinite well of the grace of God in Christ is available to us to love our enemies and to pray and seek the good of those who persecute us. Let's pray. Father, help us to love. Help us to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. Help us not only to love those who appreciate our love or who return our love, but Father, may our love be so radical and so cruciform that even amongst those who who hate us and reject us, there can be no plausible answer, no plausible explanation other than the fact that our faith, that our virtues, our values, and our practices are supernatural. And they are something that is out of this world. Father, I wrestle with temptation all the time. And so convinced me, Lord, of the victory of Christ the freedom from shame and guilt, but also the freedom from sin's penalty and power. Convince me, Lord, in the depths of my being and convince all of us here that in that assurance of pardon that we heard even earlier this service, that is a declaration of heavenly realities that transcend anything and everything that we face on a daily basis. Father, orient us to the endless powers that are available to us as those who participate in the resurrection life of Jesus Christ, in whom and through whom your spirit and your word are alive and working in accomplishing your purposes in a world that cannot stand against you. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.